you've walked in, in the last few minutes. My name's Jeremy, and uh, we've been on the ground for three whole weeks now. And uh, we're from Central Florida, so, well, from Atlanta originally, which if it snows in Atlanta, everybody freaks out and like buys two weeks worth of groceries and then holds up in their house. I think you are a little more mild-mannered about snow than that, from what I can tell. But we didn't even have a first winter in Lakeland, and so experiencing a second winter may, it may feel to you like a curse, but to us, it feels like a blessing. So praise the Lord for second winter. We've been in this, uh, in this series for the past few weeks uh, entitled Be Curious, in search of the real Jesus. And that may be a, a surprising statement in search of the real Jesus as if there's a fake one. It's not so much that there's a fake one, but there are, there are various ways that we can understand who this God-man is. And the best way that we can accurately begin to understand who he is, is to encounter him in his word. Because in our minds, we're going to do the very same thing that the Israelites and people all throughout history have done is just make up who God, who we think God is in our brains. And then we're going to bring that to church. We're going to bring that to our families. We're going to bring that to our jobs and live accordingly. And so this is an opportunity to kind of recalibrate who is God really. And most likely he is going to be different than we expect. Because if I'm making him in my image, he's going to be a lot more like me. But if I actually reflect on who he is, we may come up surprised. And I think another thing is helpful to say as we go to, you know, if you've been around the Bible for a while, maybe some of these stories like the woman at the well are kind of old hat. Uh, they've lost some of their luster. Or maybe this is brand new for you today. Wherever we are in our walk with Jesus and our understanding of who he is this morning, we have to come to the text knowing that these are not exemplary people. The woman at the well is not some amazing person who God just dropped down in history to have this perfect interaction with Jesus so that it would stand the test of time and be passed through all generations so we could hear it this morning. She's a normal woman. And what we're going to see, I hope, is she's a lot more like us than we would even like to admit. So these are normal people, and their experiences of Jesus are not unique. They're, they're very much like yours and my experience of Jesus might be. Maybe you can say in this room this morning, I've, I've had an experience with Jesus, and I'm not talking about anything mystical or weird. I'm just talking about there have been times in my life that you may be saying that I have experienced the goodness and sweetness of his word being applied to my heart in ways that I couldn't get in there and figure out myself. There's been sweetness in times of prayers. I've been talking to him where I've felt his nearness and his love. Or maybe you said, maybe you'd say, I don't even know who Jesus is really. I'm not even sure if I really believe him. Wherever you are this morning, we need to look no further than the words on the page that we are about to read and trusting and believing that this is actually God's very words to our ears from his mouth. So we can have an encounter and an experience with Jesus this morning. Uh, and so with that, let's read. Uh, let's hear what the Lord has to say to us out of John 4. And Janie is going to do that for us now. 
Would you stand if you're able for the reading of God's word? Thank you. This is John 4, verses 3 through 26. I'm going to get my page turn ready here. There we go. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask for a drink? How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Hmm. Thanks be to God. Part of the reason I love scripture is that it's so innately human. Like part of the reason that I believe that this isn't just a, a, you know, a bunch of writers who are sort of making stuff up and cobbling together ancient mysteries to, to make something that will hopefully impact some people uh, with some collective wisdom is the fact that it, it describes so well my inner life. It describes so well the way that I see the world playing out, the way that I see human interaction happen, and the way that when I view my heart, where I go and why I go there. And so hopefully you can see a little bit of yourself or the goal of this over the next 20 minutes or so is that you may find yourself a little bit more in this encounter and it might become your encounter with Jesus. 
and not just one that you're watching from afar. This woman has layers upon layers upon layers of reasons why Jesus should want to have nothing to do with her. And perhaps you feel the same way this morning. Layers upon layers of things internally that you may say, if Jesus knew this, if Jesus knew that, if, I, if other people knew that, if my family knew that, if I even said some of the things that I think in here out loud, everybody else would remove their presence from me. And certainly the God of the universe would too, if there even is one. But again, this is a series about the real Jesus and Jesus is not the one that you would expect. He's not a God like any other. He's not a God like you or I. So we're going to look at this passage kind of in three movements. Uh, the pursuer of shame, talking about Jesus as he begins to pursue the woman at the well. Second, the squirm of shame. You see her discomfort and maybe in your life as Jesus has pursued you, you have felt the discomfort of his closeness because he sees the real you. And thirdly, the end of shame. Uh, so let's talk first about Jesus, the pursuer of shame. I love the way that this passage starts off. It, it begins that Jesus is kind of been, if you track back in John a little bit, Jesus has been on this outward missionary journey. And it sounds very similar if you're familiar with the beginning of the book of Acts. It started in Jerusalem with Jesus cleansing the temple. It then goes one region outward to, uh, to Judea, which, of which Jerusalem is the capital. And then Jesus is baptizing, and that's where John the Baptist, uh, if you have heard those famous words that he has said, uh, he must increase, I must decrease, John the Baptist says, as Jesus is beginning to rise to power and prominence in that area. Then if you look on a map, there's this section of town between the region of Judea and Galilee, which is kind of his home turf. And the region in between Judea and Galilee is this place called Samaria. And in the, in the lore of the, the uh, Israelites, the Samaritans were always kind of this yucky bunch that you just kind of wanted to keep at arm's reach. I want you to notice verse four, if you have it in front of you, or if you remember from, uh, from a few moments ago, the word describing why Jesus wanted to go or had to go through Samaria is the word that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, most of the time and most of the people of that day, if they had to pass through Samaria, what that meant is, oh, like they say it with a grumble. I got to go visit my folks and I got to pass through Samaria. Uh, it's, it's almost like uh, we're from Atlanta, but we spent the last 11 years in uh, Central Florida and Lakeland. And there's this on the drive down 75 from Atlanta to Lakeland, you have to pass through this godforsaken country called Gator Territory. And so as you pass through Gainesville, you can almost just feel the Cretans uh, coming towards you on every side. And it's that sense is I got to go through Gainesville because I got to go to Lakeland. I got to go through Samaria because I got to get home. But when Jesus says it, he uses the word for he feels compelled. It's not, oh, I have to. It's I have to. Do you get the difference in that sense there? I must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he had somebody to meet. 
And so he's tired. It's about noon. The sun's beating down on him and he comes across a well. He sits down at that well and sits there for a moment or two. And then in his divine sovereignty up walks the very person that he was just waiting to talk to. And this woman walks up. You can imagine the way that she walked up based on the context clues. I can imagine that she was walking up and she was, her eyes were, were down or cutting away. Her face is downcast. Her body language is sort of turning away and turned inward. She's avoiding eye contact. She's probably going to the opposite side of this well. She is one who does not want to be seen. And it's an odd time. Did you notice the timestamp that John gives? Every detail in here is really important. The timestamp of noon, it's about noon. Normally at noon is not the time when water would be drawn. Noon is the time for, you know, bringing babies to, uh, to their nursery, their physician's appointments, or going to get groceries, or, uh, you know, hanging out and having lunch with your friends. It wasn't the time to go do those kind of chores. That was like morning and evening kind of stuff. Like, you don't do the dishes in the middle of the day, weirdo, unless you're me. I really like doing dishes, actually. But she finds herself there in the middle of the day, and it's all this process of trying to avert other people's gaze. She's trying to fly under the radar as it was. She's alone, and she has nothing else to do. Hmm. That should tell us something about her. Then Jesus pierces the silence. He breaks through, and he says, can you grab me a drink? You get me one of those Aquafinas? And she, she immediately says, wait a minute, why? There's two layers of shame that are already stacked on top of her before she even says a thing. And what are those two things? She identifies both of them. She says, why are you talking to me? One, because I am a Samaritan. We've already talked about the inferior race, the less human Samaritans. Secondly, why are you talking to me? Because I am a woman from Samaria. And in that culture, to be a woman, uh, even husbands and wives who were walking through the town, it was improper for them to talk to one another out in public, let alone a Jew from Jerusalem and a great teacher at that and this unsightly woman from Samaria. Thus her response, how, how is it that you were going to ask me for a drink? I'm, I'm not even worthy to give you a drink. I'm not even worthy to serve you. And if you only knew the rest of me. So you may not be a woman from Samaria, but I imagine that there are places in your life where you may have experienced this thing called shame. Certainly, I think it, we can say that this is a universal experience in all of humanity, which again, testifies to the truth and the reality of this interaction between these two people that has been passed down through the ages. Kurt Thompson, uh, who I believe you've heard Dave talk about before, he, he defines shame this way. He says, the difference between shame and guilt is this. Guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I I am bad. There's a distinction between those two things. Shame started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. 
It's, it is an obvious part of the narrative as you see the first two humans experiencing nakedness and unashamedness. And they're living in this perfect world with this perfect relationship between them. And the minute that sin enters the picture, the minute that the good creation goes bad, the minute that it gets turned upside down, what do you see have happen? Hiding, covering, running away. That's, that is the movement of shame. Uh, maybe a, a colloquial way to describe shame would just be, it's, it's what makes you want to hide. And so what is it this morning in your life that makes you want to hide? What is it that is a part of you that you have spent many nights wishing were not a part of you? What is it about your story and your history that you wish you could erase? Those are the places where you may be experiencing shame. And then Jesus continues to pursue. That's exactly, ultimately, the way that he pursues the woman at this very point of her shame is the very same place. Those places that you don't even want to say out loud, that you almost don't want to even bring into your cognition, those are the places that Jesus wants to pursue you. And he is. So Jesus puts his finger then even further on that shame, and we, we begin to experience her squirm. We begin to experience her kind of slip slidiness. There's a, there's a game with, that some members of my family who will remain nameless, you can just figure this out as you get closer to, to knowing us. Uh, they play this game called, uh, where does it hurt? And then when you tell them where it hurts, they poke it. You know anybody in your life like that? That's what Jesus is doing. Hey, where does it hurt? He just noodles in there. And after pushing away initially with this question of, who, who am I that you would ask me for a drink? I'm a woman from Samaria. We shouldn't even be talking right now. I'm just going to get my water and I'm going to be on my way. He then pursues and pushes in another layer towards her, another layer through her shame. And so he begins with this discussion of living water and the distinction between this H2O that you're pulling up out of the ground and the JC, Jesus Christ, you're you're welcome. Um, That was my pastor joke for the day that she is actually longing for. And there there is this distinction drawn where she is saying, I would love to have living water. Like you're telling me I never have to drink again. And you're telling me, I don't have to keep showing my face at this well. I don't have to keep coming out in public. I can hide further into my shame. I can hide and and bring myself only to my, my own home and move everybody else away from me so that nobody else has to look at me. And Jesus says, that's not exactly what I mean. And he begins to push and pursue even further. So he puts his finger on the exact part of her that she wants to hide. He says, you want living water? You want those two things? Just go, just go grab your hubby and bring them on back. And then you can feel her shrink again in shame. He, oh, he must not know. My reputation must not have preceded me yet. And so come to find out she does not have a husband. Jesus then tells her, you're right, 
you, you don't have a husband. You, you've had five. And the one who you're with now is, is not even your husband. And she begins to shrink internally again. Though, of course, likely she was not completely at fault in every one of these relationships in every way. Uh, this in no way is to uh, put all the blame on her and say she was the worst and all those other guys, I'm sure they were saints. There's blame to go all the way around. But what this passage does begin to show us, because Jesus is pointing or pushing on that spot of thirst, is that there is something about her desire level pursuits that is drawing her away from the good life and into toxic life. And so he is getting at, and he's drawing, the reason you've gone after all these men is because there is something inside of you that longs to be filled. And you're looking from man to man to man to man to fill that. And it's not going to. And so as he continues to, to press his finger further and further into that spot, she, she squirms. She goes, okay, fine. Uh, you, I see that you're a prophet. And then she goes total, you know, 180 and says, let's have a theological. You're a prophet. Let's talk theology. Great. I'd much rather talk theology than talk about how screwed up I am. We in the church may be guilty at times of spending our time on intramural debates as a way of deflection from the heart of the matter. Not always. There is good debate to have. But have you ever found yourself in one of those places where you'd much rather talk about what it, let's debate climate change for the love as long as you don't have to know me any further. And so she diverts and she dodges and she bobs and she weaves. But what Jesus is ultimately getting after is that her search for satisfaction has only multiplied her shame. It hasn't taken it away. It is actually the fruit of trying to place your heart and your love in a, in a place that it wasn't made to go. And so wherever or whatever that is for you, you can begin to draw back from that place of shame that we tried to identify earlier. What are the ways in which I have been going about my life the wrong way that are ultimately leading me to those places? And then you can begin to peel back the layers so that Jesus, or actually Jesus is the one peeling back the layers so that he can then put you back together which is where he goes next. Because when, when Jesus pursues in, everything in us wants to turn away. If, if you've ever been exposed in anything, you know that feeling. Like, you know the feeling, and it seems like there, there are just those times and those seasons of, of life where it feels like Jesus just won't let up. Like I'm doing my best to kind of put on a good face and keep everything going in the right direction. And then my kids, you know, I'm blowing up at my kids and I'm screwing up at my job and I can't put on a happy face anymore at church. What's wrong with me? Could it be that that's actually the place where Jesus is pursuing you the most? You're actually coming to terms with the reality that you, that is you. That person that you've been trying to hide is you. And is me. That's where Jesus is going. That's the, the dissection that he's doing into this woman's soul right now. All right, let's bring this to a close. The end of shame. 
why would Jesus do this? Why, why would he continue to heap shame upon shame upon shame to this woman as she is continuing to turn in on herself, to turn away from him? Because he's trying to expose it. He's trying to bring light to it. Shame, shame is like mold. It grows in the dark. It loves those dark places. In fact, it's defined by the darkness. It is those places where you most want to stay in the dark. But the more that you stay in the dark, the more that it will continue to grow. It will not get better. It will get worse until it is exposed. And so you may have heard the term severe mercy. That is a severe mercy from the Lord if you have had a time in your life where you have felt exposed. That is the very place that God wants to do the greatest work in you. So let me give you a personal story, a personal, for instance, and then we'll close up. Um, To get you also to know a little bit more about me and my story, a place for me that has always been very sensitive is the place of success and failure. Since I was little, I've always loved being the successful one. I've always very much feared and had an aversion to and avoided any opportunity for failure. I was a good kid, got good grades, nice to my friends, loved my parents, didn't get in trouble. Success, 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 success. I worked for a a camp ministry. Uh, I got every trophy there possible. I was the counselor of the year. Uh, I was the leader of the year. I got this, uh, literally a giant rock. It was this big. They got pulled out of a riverbed in, uh, in North Georgia. It's called the Rock Award. All these Bible verses all over it because I was the rock of the camp. And I toted that thing around. It was so heavy, bringing it up to the third floor of Creswell Dormitory at uh, University of Georgia. But I did it because I earned it because that was me. I was the success. I feel called to, to ministry right after, uh, right after school. My first job is at this big, amazing uh, church in Atlanta called Perimeter. Uh, right after that, I, I go start a youth ministry at, for a church plant um, that is in a similar agent stage to this church plant right now. Uh, and that's what brought us to Lakeland originally. That thing grows. It does well. My family grows during that process. Everything's going great. I pick up, I get ordained. I finish seminary. Success, success, success. I get, uh, I start a, or not start, but continue on a music ministry at the church. Get a lot of accolades for that. A lot of attaboys. A lot of people coming over, you know, coming up after service saying how awesome. What a gift to the church I was. And then I planned a church. went the right direction. Because in, the, in January of 2018, we planted Good Shepherd Church. Uh, that church lasted for three and a half years, and then we closed Good Shepherd Church on May 23rd of 2021. And for the first time in my life, I was a failure. From that moment forward, uh, there was a lot of searching. There was a lot of questioning. I got a job as a, uh, a golf course uh, turf management dude, which essentially meant I was mowing greens and I was uh, cutting cups and I was doing the little edging thing all the way around 10 miles of a cart path. That was me. Tim Keller has said, uh, who's a, a pastor in New York or was, um, 
He, he said before that you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. And that was my story. And that is my story. It was a severe mercy what the Lord did in taking that away. It was a good work that he did along the way. It was not for nothing, but it was the very purpose of which he was pursuing me, maybe for no other reason, is why that went the way it did. Uh, you may see me walking around in a black Callaway hoodie, the golf company, and that's my little token, my little memento to remember that time and to not get too far ahead of myself and to not get too back up in that success-failure trap. Because Jesus brings it back around and says, here's the whole point. Here's the whole point. For her, this woman, with all of this baggage and all of this shame, here is the point for you, and here's the point for me. Worship God then in spirit and in truth. Now that is kind of a funky verse to have to figure out, but if I had to sum that up in one sentence, it would essentially mean this. That means in spirit, bring the real you and truth to the real God. To worship rightly is to bring your whole self to the actual God who is. Your whole self. The parts that you want to hide. The parts that you're not proud of. The parts of your story you wish weren't there. Bring your whole self to the whole God because that is the very place where Jesus loves you the best. I've experienced it. I hope you have too. Because for Jesus, the Samaritan woman and all of the worst things that, that he knew about her before she even said them, those were the very things for which he would in just a few years die. Hebrews 12 says, it's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross despising its shame. What does that mean? There was shame to be crucified. There was shame to be hung naked in front of the whole town to see as you slowly died of either asphyxiation uh, or heart attack, or if you were killed in some other way first. But not only was that shaming enough, there was also all of this shame that he was experiencing. He was bearing my shame and bearing yours in all of those yucky little places. He was bearing those things before the Father. Adulterer, liar, cheater, whatever that is. He was those things. He was cursed for those things so that you don't have to bear the weight of that. God's anger was on Jesus for those broken places in your life so that you can, with abandon, go to those broken places of your life and say, that is the real me. And Jesus doesn't break you down even further, but in fact, that's where he welcomes you in the most. He felt the shame of our sins and our failures, so we don't have to. Therefore, he knows us. He knows us inside and out. That's very uh, obvious from his interaction with the woman. Before she even said a thing, 
He already knew her. And then he considers it a joy to know you. And he considers it a joy to die for you then and a joy to live with you now. That is his invitation this morning to you. Would you take that up? Hear him calling, hear, feel him pressing. And would those be the places? What is the last movement here? She leaves the bucket. She leaves the well that she'd been going to time after time after time, hoping that it would fulfill her. And instead she goes to the one who actually can. And so this may feel, I guess, maybe to summarize and close, the takeaway from the sermon might be welcome the exposure. Welcome it. You, You might be able to control that exposure and it may be coming out of your mouth, something that's bubbling up inside of you even right now, or it may be that you have been exposed. More my story. I wasn't trying, it just happened. And in that, my heart is going, pulling all sorts of different directions. And then Jesus, the anchor comes and settles it in him. However that happens for you, it might feel like those cold exposure ice baths where you jump in and there's that immediate shock to your system which apparently is somehow healthy. I was reading a little bit of it. So it does something like it reduces swelling in muscles, flushes out lactic acid. Somehow you get out healthier than you went in. Somehow you get out healthier to the exposure than you went in if you run to Jesus with it. So that is the invitation from Jesus. And with these last few songs that we sing, uh, would you take that invitation and run to him and know that he is running towards you. Let's pray. So Father, thanks. Uh, Thank you that you pursue us in all of our yuck, in all of our mess, in all of our inability, in all of our failure. You pursue us. You've pursued me. And so how could we not leave all the things that we have gone to again and again and again and continue to leave us empty and dry and shriveled? and come instead to living water. Would we taste and see this morning that you are good? We pray in Christ. Amen.